0: Well, as we begin, I want to invite you to reach into the deepest recesses of your memory. We are almost to the halfway point of 2014, and you will have to work to remember a time about 150 days ago in which with great fervency, You made commitments to yourself called New Year's resolutions. Do you remember this? It hasn't been that long ago that you were bound and determined that this was going to be the year that you were going to build muscle, lose weight, eat fewer calories, stop yelling at your kids, make more money, save more money, not overspend. Remember those New Year's resolutions? So who has the courage and the guts to admit in the house of the Lord today that we're not quite at the halfway mark of the year and you have already miserably failed at your New Year's resolutions. Who would say, yes, many, many hands. So who would take the next step of courage and say that halfway into the year, you're pretty sure you made New Year's resolutions, but you can't actually remember what they are. Put those hands up. Yeah, I love seeing those hands go up around the room because they represent the quintessential human dilemma. They represent a dilemma that is universally true and certainly true for each one of us. And that dilemma uh, can be framed in two statements that are true for each one of us and yet are constantly in tension, conflict, and warring against one another. Here's the first one. It's true for all of us. I want to change. We do. This is part of our shared Humanity. One reason why we make New Year's resolutions each year is because it is a natural part of being human that we want to change. For many of us, this is at a very deep level and an innate level why we show up here in church week after week because there is something in us that implicitly realizes that to be fully human is to want to change for the better, to be in this continual state of change. There was a great poet named Tennyson who described this urge within us as the urge to strive, to seek, to fight, and not to yield. In the words of Scripture, in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, Scripture says, to grow up in your salvation. All that is really defining this universal innate human need that we want to be in a continual state of change. Well, here's the problem. It's not that easy, is it? In the same way that each one of us wants to change, this constancy inside of us is met by an equally powerful constancy that is true for each one of us. And it's this. It's really hard to change. Can I get a witness? Yeah, don't rib your spouse, guys. It's hard for you to change too. It is. I know this uh, from working with high school students for many, many years. Jeremy and I both spent a lot of time in youth ministry. And I started to notice that the grades a 16-year-old made were pretty much the same grades he or she made back in fifth grade and would mimic the same grades he or she would make in college. Why? Because it's really hard to change. And I've got news for you. If it's hard to change when you're 16, imagine how hard it is to change when you're 36 or 56 or 86. So we have these two realities grinding against one another deep within each and one of us every day. The need to change, to be fully human, that is in this perpetual state of gridlock with how hard it is to actually change. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 21, So I find this law at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I want to change, and yet it's so darn hard to change. So enter into this dilemma the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity. Because I believe at the most basic level, the message of the gospel is that God makes to you and I a promise. And that promise is that he is going to give us his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. God promises, I'm going to give you the gift of this power to break the change gridlock so that you can truly change and so that you can truly reach the potential that God has for each one of us. But the way that God chooses to do that, I think, is really fascinating, curious, and frustrating. Because it would be really awesome if God just in a moment's notice shocked us with power to change so that we were suddenly different. You know what I'm saying? So that we're immediately a great parent, immediately the perfect husband and wife, immediately the perfect employee, immediately the perfect saver and spender. But for whatever reason, God does not tend to operate that way. Instead, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to do this, to peel back the onion of ourselves and to begin to work in our most primal needs, our most primal fears, our most implicit, unstated and primal insecurities, hopes, pains, dreams, sufferings, all that unconscious soup in us that is at the center of us. It's when we open up that part of ourself to the work of the Holy Spirit that God breaks the change gridlock. And allows us to be successful in personally executing change in our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In order to do what I'm talking about, you've got to exercise the courage and the tenacity to peel back the onion of self so that God can work at the roots of you so that change becomes possible. I want to speak to you on three simple words this morning. How people change. So I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 2, which is in the New Testament. It's past the Gospels. This is one of the earliest letters, um, earliest documents in the New Testament. It's written by a church planter named Paul the Apostle. And I think what's so important to do when we stop and read biblical texts like this is to remember that nobody really knows what the Christian life looks like yet. Uh, This These statements are the products of people working out what Christianity looks like along the way because there is no Christianity. You know, there aren't church buildings and pastors and seminaries and ordination and and worship bands and all the trappings of church that we have now. There's nothing. There's just a simple message of the coming, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and how it enables people to live new life, change life. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is describing. Even though the language is a little cryptic, I think it boils down quite simply to how people change. So I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 2. I'll start at verse 6, and then we will read down to verse 12. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom, Among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Those of you who you you, you like Rush Limbaugh and Fox News, uh, this is Paul the Apostle taking an open pot shot at Caesar, by the way. So if you like like the political culture wars, you'd like the Bible. It's right in here. Uh, Verse seven. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul's basically saying that the entire history of God, the entire plan of God that was so hidden for so long has now burst onto the scene through the coming of Jesus Christ and that ultimate plan has been revealed to us verse 10 but God has revealed it to us by his spirit and here it is the spirit searches all things even the deep things of God for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him in the same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God we have not received the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us the exchange that this text is offering to you and I is to exchange stuff within us that is not of God for instead what he has freely and openly given to us. And I believe that is ultimately how people change. Uh, A few months ago, uh, during what has got to be the worst winter we have experienced in the Atlanta area for some time, I got uh, to experience one of the coolest and most unique experiences of my entire life. I I moonlight as a college and seminary professor in the field of New Testament, and so I I had this opportunity for, it's pro bono work, but all expenses are paid, and I got to fly to Port-au-Prince, Haiti to teach for four days in the Church of God Theological Seminary there in the capital city. I was teaching the books of Luke and Acts to about uh, 40 working pastors, who you can see pictured with me here on the screens. I'm a little bit hard to pick out. If you go to the bottom row and count over to the right about four people, uh, you'll see me there uh, wearing the suit and tie. I really felt bad about going uh, in January when, you know, we had like the snow zombie apocalypse thing happening because it was 85 degrees every day and sunny in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and... The seminary there is kind of set on the side of a mountain overlooking the sea. And there is no need for air conditioning because the breeze from the sea just blow, blew through the open air classroom all day long. I mean, I felt like I had died and gone to heaven. One thing I tell my daughters who are just six and eight, they're little, but I, I, I still get the chance also to speak to a lot of high school students uh, from time to time. And I, I tell young people, you have to figure out a way to do for a living what you love most in this life. Because if you do, you will be amazed at the experiences that God allows for you uh, to have. Now, I've been on mission trips before. I'm sure that many of you have as well. But I truly never been on a trip that was as cross-culturally immersive as my trip to Haiti. And that is and that is because, as you can tell, I'm the only American there. I'm traveling alone, and all day long, I am submerged in Haitian culture. I'm with my students, speaking to them in their language through a translator. I'm eating with them, praying with them, worshiping with them, studying the Bible with them, going over written work with them. I mean, it was a full-on immersive experience in what it's like To live in Haiti and to even figure out how Haitians think, which is so different from us. And it was in this immersive cross-cultural experience that it began to dawn on me how people really change. Do you know the key to successful change in your life, in your church, in your family, in your marriage, in your business? It dawned on me in Port-au-Prince. The key to change is culture. And the definition of culture, now this isn't a bad Bill Clinton reference from the 90s to those of you who remember that whole debacle. Not a typo here. Uh, Culture is, is. Culture is, is. Culture is all of these unstated, implicit truths that you have bought into, whether they're truth or lie doesn't really matter. You assume that they are true and they create your worldview. Culture is the chair that holds you right now. You have had so many experiences with chairs. Probably none of them have ever collapsed uh, beneath you. Therefore, you walk in this room and without even thinking about it, unhesitatingly, you assume that the chair will hold you. You don't even think about it. That's culture. Culture is all this subconscious soup deep within us. That we assume that makes it very, very difficult to even make our assumptions explicit. And it was in Port-au-Prince as I began to be immersed in this very different culture that I began to understand that the key to change is first and foremost, understanding my ises. Understanding what I implicitly believe to be automatically true without even thinking about it, that's the key to change. Let me give you a couple stories from my trip that will start to uh, flesh this out. I was really pumped up to get a round trip airline ticket to Port au Prince, Haiti for $375. That sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? I mean, to be able to fly internationally for under $400. Spirit Airlines. Have you heard of this? It's the worst flying experience that mankind has ever devised. And, you know, flying has never been fun, at least uh, not for me. The reason that the ticket is so cheap is that every last thing on Spirit Airlines costs money. I mean, those of you who fly from time to time, and I've flown a lot in my adult life, you know that flying is awful. You're late, you're cramped, you're uncomfortable. It's hot when you first get into the plane. But there's one bit of solace in the flying experience, and that is when you finally reach cruising altitude, you are going to get a free shot of Dr. Pepper. Just a free kind of sugar shot with maybe a cube or two of ice in there, and that kind of gets you three. No, Spirit Airlines, it's not free. Beverage service will cost you $4. It's ridiculous. It co- Sorry if there are any Spirit employees, by the way. All apologies, but I'm just outing you. Um, it's $50 to take a carry-on bag on a Spirit Airlines flight. Now, I get that the new racket is you got to pay to get your bags checked, you know, and the cargo part of the plane. No, just to bring a carry-on bag, it's $50. I read an interview with the CEO because I was so shocked by this experience. And he, he was actually... Um, letting the public know that they would not charge for using the bathroom. I mean, they've had a conversation about this at the highest level of Spirit Airlines. Could we get away with charging people 10 bucks to use the bathroom? You want to know how bad it is? In an effort to cut cost, I'm telling you the truth, Spirit Airlines has eliminated that little... Uh, silver button that allows you to lean back in the airline seat like two inches and relieve the pressing, searing pain on your load. You can't even do that. I mean, you're just leaning forward the whole time in discomfort. It is like they have resurrected that old Charles Dickens character, Ebenezer Scrooge, and made him the CEO of the airline. It's absolutely awful. So you can imagine how thrilled I was, given the discomfort of Spirit Airlines, to get on my connecting flight in Miami... Uh, to, and the flight, you know, all the passengers file in. We're about to fly over the ocean to Port-au-Prince. And the flight is like 20% full. In fact, safe to say, I've never seen a flight that the, that was this empty. I was, it was amazing. But, of course, Spirit Airlines, just being mean about everything, they pack you in like sardines, They pack the rows full. So even though there are row upon row upon row of empty seats, I'm packed in there, the only American in in this row, along with everybody else in the seats. You know what I'm saying? So I can't wait until the the captain dings off the fasten seatbelt sign once we get to cruising altitude so that I can get my own row. Brothers and sisters, this does not happen. Your own row. I mean, this is the stuff of Islamic paradise. Like you either get 70 virgins or your own row for the rest of eternity. It's it's unbelievable. Those of you who fly know that in the chance you are sitting uh, in the aisle or by the window and the middle seat is open beside you and the passengers are filing through. What are you doing? You're praying, you're praying, you're praying the Hail Mary. If you, you know, the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, where every doxology you can think of and you're praying that, oh, Lord, look with favor upon thy servant. Let this middle seat remain empty. And the jubilance that you feel, if in fact it remains empty, uh, but your own row, I mean, your own row is just a, a hole cut above that. It doesn't happen. So right when the fasten seat belt sign goes off, I bolt for my own row and I realize that the the Haitian passenger beside me is looking at me funny, like I have offended her. I could feel it. I could tell. And so I mumbled something about, you know, I'm going to teach and I've got books and papers and need to spread out, but I felt kind of awkward about it. And I felt even more awkward when I looked around the flight. And although I am trying to be the American who fits into Haitian culture, I am the only person on the flight who moved, the only one. All of the other Haitian pastors sitting in these tiny cramped seats right beside one another and literally nobody moves. And what's amazing is that when I relayed this story to my Haitian students, they looked at me as if they had no idea what I was talking about. Like they did not have the cognitive hardware to put together why it would be strange For somebody to want to sit close together to one another. You know, in America, we'll cut somebody up to get our own row. I mean, it's serious business. But there, none of the Haitians moved. Do you know why? Culture. Because there are a bunch of subconscious ises that are undergirding the way we act on airplanes. And how badly we want our own row. Here in America, we're the most individualistic nation in the world. We value privacy, and we take our identity from standing apart from the group. That's our is. We're individuals. We're isolated. We're islands. But in Haiti, their cultural script is completely the opposite of that. Their cultural script is this. Life is meant to be public. Life is meant to be lived In community with one another. So it would not be a preference at all to have your own row. That would be a bad thing. It would not be a preference at all in Haiti to stand apart from the group and kind of be an individual. And just like we tell our high school students, you know, you're so special and you're so unique, even though you're probably not. We do that here because, you know, it fits our cultural script. They don't talk that way at all. Anthropologists uh, call this in, in peasant cultures like Haiti dyadic personality but I would not have been able to understand this cultural disconnect between me and Haitian culture without being able to articulate what the is is. Let me tell you one more story. Uh, the Haitian classroom is really lively. I mean, it's really intense. It's not like the American classroom at all, and I've got a fair amount of experience in the American classroom. These, they are just absolutely worlds apart. In fact, my second day of lecturing there, I appointed a class leader, like a monitor or class president to uh, uh, mediate all of the discussion, all of the discussion questions, because anytime I would say, are there any questions, Uh, 20 hands would go up, people would jump up and down, and 20 people would be screaming at me in French, which I do not speak or understand. So it was kind of jarring. And the questions were super intense. Like, professor, you said this, but what about this? Well, I disagree, Dr. Rice, with your interpretation on this. Professor, you said this, but what about here, here, and here? These are all the things I disagree with you about. And my translator, who's a really cool guy, uh, he called this the shooting range, which did not make me feel a whole lot better about, um, about the situation. It took me about a day, after being completely taken aback by the fervor and the intensity of their questions, to realize that they were not being disrespectful to me at all. But in fact, in their cultural is... They were affording me the ultimate uh, honor. Because Haiti has a different view of experts than we do here. In in America, we're a very expert-driven society. Uh, That's why you all are kind of quietly and dutifully listening to me and sort of assuming, which is very scary, that I'm the expert on something and you're going to learn about. You'll never see a a worship environment like this in Haiti. Instead, when the preacher is preaching, guess what everybody's doing in Haiti, not just in Pentecostal churches and all the churches. They're shouting back at the preacher. They're engaged in a dialogue with the preacher. Yes, they esteem experts, but they don't believe that truth is something that emanates from the mouth of an expert. Instead, they believe that truth has to be created communally. Truth has to be created in dialogue. And so by confronting me with their intense questions, my Haitian students were actually saying, Josh, we trust you enough to create truth with you. We trust you enough to challenge you so that the truth that you're talking about can become our truth. But see, I wouldn't have been able to pick up on that and understand that without decoding the culture, without understanding what there is, is. And when you start seeing change, seeing people in your life, seeing relationships and seeing challenges through this culture lens, do you know what becomes evident in a hurry? it becomes apparent that you don't need to go to a foreign country to have a cross-cultural experience. All of life is a cross-cultural experience. Every interaction that you have with another human being, especially in marriage, by the way, is an interaction with somebody who doesn't necessarily share your ises, but is instead this concoction of all kinds of insecurities and fears and primal drives that create for them what there is is. And those drives are inside of you too. Let me give you two case studies that will flesh out the power of culture, which will lead us to the power of change really, really quickly. And by the way, guys, I'm spending 99% right here because this is the change battleground. And I'll spend about 60 seconds on those two. Okay. So don't get nervous. We're not going to be here all day or anything like that. Um, So last month was April and I made the funeral march, to the post office to mail in my federal taxes. It's just you know, one of the most depressing days of my year. Uh, it, that's just a hard check to write, folks. Thankful for the country, want to support the effort. Hard check to write under any circumstances. So I go to the post office already feeling, you know, not terribly thrilled about mailing this to the federal government. And, uh, you know, that feeling is completely um, pumped up by the fact that the line in the post office at Sandy Plains in Marietta is 16 people long. I counted 16 people with one register open. Now, you might think it's because there are no employees there at the post office. This would not be the case. They are there. And they are aware of the line. I'm watching this all unfold. They're looking at the line. They're talking to people in the line. They are engaging the line. But it doesn't seem to cross the minds of any of the post office workers at this particular branch that they might do something about the line. Now, the federal government has hired a bunch of really smart, brainy people to crunch a bunch of really fancy numbers to try to figure out how to close the five billion dollar with a B, five billion dollar shortfall that the United States Post Office cost you and I the taxpayers last year, but it doesn 't take a genius. To survey this scene and to think to oneself, you know, I could go to the UPS store right across the street, be greeted with a friendly smile, and I'd have to pay a little bit more money probably for the service. But you know what? I wouldn't have to wait in the line. So why can't the good people at the post office figure something out that seems very, very simple to you and I? Listen, it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they're not smart. It's not because they don't want to serve the public and it's not because the U.S. Post Office is not an important institution to our country. Do you know the reason? It's culture. It's culture. The post office is an institution that has a 200 plus year history. And my assumption is that that 200 year history has convinced them along the way that what matters is transactions. If we just kind of do enough transactions, then we'll stay afloat, which leads them to think if the line is long, that's a good thing because that's more transactions, which means we can keep going another day. The power of culture is driving the United States post office out of business. Let me give you one more case study. Um, I keep a a relic from the past that some of you will realize on my desk at work every day. And in fact, for over a year, um, I carried this around in my wallet just because I want to look at, at it every day so I can just be reminded of what it means. Does anybody remember these? Can you see this? Yes, you remember the blockbuster video membership card. Now, our high school students probably won't remember this at all, but there was a day when you rented a video at a bricks-and-mortar store, and if you brought it back a day late, they charged you, like, the price of the video. It made absolutely no sense, and Blockbuster was the worst at it. But Blockbuster was as plentiful as Waffle House. You guys remember that? I mean, there was a Blockbuster in every town of every major city around the world. It was a giant Fortune 100 company at the time. But I'll bet that you knew 10 years ago that if Blockbuster Video didn't change their business model, then Netflix was going to come along and put them out of business. Could you see that coming? I know you could. You're smart enough to see that coming. So what happened? Blockbuster Video did not change their business model, and Netflix came and put them out of business. Why? Because they're stupid? No. Because they're lazy? No. They're driven by MBA-holding Hardworking executives, they have amazing talent on their board of directors, and yet they went bankrupt because they could not make the transition from bricks and mortar to the online platform. Why? Culture. It's always culture because there is, along the way, had to be insecurity. And they got to the point where they just thought, it's worked so long. Oh, those are dangerous words in any organization, in any family. This, our, our method has worked this long. If we just hang in there long enough, then everything will come back and one day everything will be as it used to be. And, of course, their culture drove them out of business. Listen, everything has a culture and culture trumps everything. Your church has a culture. Your grocery store has a culture. Your place of business has a culture. Your school has a culture. Your marriage has a culture. Your family has a culture. And you have a culture. Every human being, including you and I, we are infinitely complex, made up of all of this subconscious soup of primal drives and insecurities and fears and hopes and beliefs that give to us our worldview and give to us what our is is. So what does any of that have to do with how people change? I'm glad you asked. There are three simple components to the change process. Culture, decisions, and actions. Every human being goes through these three steps, and no step can be skipped. They are universally true in the process of how people change. So let's work backwards. Actions, of course, are the visible manifestation of change or the lack thereof. So we know whether you made good on your New Year's resolution to go to the gym and eat fewer calories if you are presently showing up at the gym and eating fewer calories. But we know that actions are not disconnected all by themselves, isolated out there in our psyches, but actions are produced by decisions. Nobody falls into either good or bad actions, but decisions, a moment of concerted effort, is what creates action. Do you know why we fail in our New Year's resolutions? Do you know why we fail in successfully executing change in our lives? It's because we focus right here to the neglect of here. We focus purely on decisions and actions. That's why we make the same resolutions every January 1st and we never stick to them. Because we act as if we are constructed to decide hard enough to get the the action that we prefer. As if if if, we just decide hard enough that this time I'm going to stop overspending and this time I'm going to be more disciplined and this time I'm going to get my action. This time if I decide harder than I did last time, this time that's going to produce the action that we want. And it never works. Because if you fail to change the is, you fail to kick off successful change in your life. This is where change starts by understanding, questioning, and diving in to all of those subconscious ises that can then lead to productive decisions that lead to the actions that we want. I want to give you two stories in real time from people that I'm really close to that will illustrate for you this change process and how you can implement it in your life. Uh, my best friend in the world, his name's David. I think, Jeremy, you probably know my pal David. Uh, David and I were acquaintances in college, but we became friends when we both got married the same year and we moved into ratty one-bedroom apartments up uh, 85 somewhere together into the same apartment complex and we were just all happy in love and broke. Does anybody remember those days? I mean, broke. I mean, going out to eat was like a big deal. We get to go out to eat this month. Oh my God. I mean, we, you know, it was amazing. Red lobster was like, you know, so untouchable for us. It was like a five-star hotel dinner or something like that back at during that time. So David and I, and, and, and our wives, we became really close And have kept in touch and stayed close all these years. David at that time went into the pharmaceutical business. And I went into ministry. And what's strange is even though we both kind of hung in there in our career. Somehow he makes a lot more money than me. I've never really figured out how that works. Um, You can imagine my pride in David's success. He works for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, He has now for 13, 14 years, and he has climbed the corporate ladder of success and all that goes with it. Uh, Just really successful guy. Amazing family guy. Loves the Lord. He's got four kids. Loves his kids. Loves his wife. Um, I just you know, have a lot of affection for David and we have a very, very close bond. Uh, David is really good with finance. He's about to pay off his house. If I have financial questions, he tends to be the guy that I go to just because he's so good with the numbers and understanding how all that stuff fits together. But something I know about David that very few people do is despite all David's success, he's never had a, 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 never been laid off, never been without work his whole life. Just ladder straight up upward. Uh, Despite all that, he worries every day about money. Every day. He stresses about money. We've had this conversation. He's working on it. But for the vast majority of his adult life, deep, deep stress related to money. Do you think that's a big deal? Yes, studies would suggest that stress over money has the same long-term effects on the body as smoking. This is a really big deal. And I realized that if David can't get this under control, he is taking years off of his lifespan. It's completely irrational. He has everything he could ever need, much of what he could ever want. He's made incredibly wise decisions with his money. He's, uh, he's on track. Uh, he has a great situation and a great job. Why, so how is he going to stop this trajectory of anxiety about worry? Should he just decide harder? Should just decide that this is the time I'm going to stop worrying about money? I doubt that. Or instead, should he focus on the ises deep within himself? Because if he did, what he would discover is that his father declared bankruptcy when David was in high school. And then when David was in college, his father suddenly died of a heart attack And because he had not been able to really rebuild his financial situation, left hardly anything behind for his family. And so because of that experience, what's David's is when it comes to money and security and the future? His is is that everything is insecure, that nothing is stable. And in order for David to be able to reap the benefit of the changed action, not stressing anymore over money, he's going to have to allow God, and he's starting to do this, deal with the cultural is. Tell you one more story and then we're going to wrap this up. I have a, a, another close friend who recently went through a moral failure in his marriage. Many of you have walked through that experience with someone in your life. I've done that before and it's a tough thing to watch all the ramifications that uh, go with that. Uh, what my friend began to realize is that rather than just deciding harder to stay on the straight and narrow, that wouldn't work at all. But instead he realized that, Uh, His infidelity was actually the result of a bunch of addictive tendencies that stretch way back to his childhood. And what's cool is, as I've watched my friend subject his ises, all that stuff inside of him to the work of God, to the work of the Holy Spirit, I've watched him be delivered from harmful decisions that lead to really, really harmful actions. So in order for change to fully take root, where is the battleground? The battleground's not in deciding harder. The battleground is not in thinking that we're just going to wake up one day and do life differently. But the battle is here. The battle is in the is. And it is there that God does his best work. The spirit searches all things. The scripture we read before says, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. You see, I believe that it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to dive into the culture of us, to dive into our ises, and to help us to exchange all of those ises that are contaminated for what God has freely given us. The message, the invitation of the gospel is that we can exchange anger that sometimes roots its way into our culture, into our is for freedom. And we can replace uh, immorality for integrity. And we can replace greed for generosity. And we can replace uh, criticism for praise. We can replace all of those ises that will derail our actions for what God has freely given us. Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, I believe, epitomize that change invitation. That we can put off the old self, be made new in the attitudes of our minds, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Will you pray with me? Maybe you realize that there's some stuff in your life that God is calling you to change. I believe that change process can happen and begin right now. Simply by inviting the Spirit, the Spirit of God to search you, to know you, and begin to reveal to you what are your ises that are driving the actions that you don't want in your life. That's His promise to you to to begin to work at the deepest part of who you are. So that that change can happen. Lord I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. Especially Lord those who have been wrestling with change. That they know they need in your life. That they know you want in their life. I pray Lord rather than getting on the hamster wheel of trying to decide harder. That instead God you would empower us. To open ourselves up to the searching ability of the Holy Spirit that you might go to the roots of our culture, the roots of our is, and exchange our contamination and our pollutants for what you have freely given us. May we not believe lies anymore at the deepest parts of who we are, but instead, may we exchange every falsity and every lie for your truth and your truth alone. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.